Great morning, church. Um, we're continuing our series, The Unchanging God in Changing Times, through the book of Nehemiah. Uh, this morning we'll be in chapter 3. Uh, before I start, let me, let me pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Um, I'm here as a willing vessel, and yet an inadequate one. Um, and I wouldn't want it any other way, Lord, because um, if I felt adequate, then it would just be me talking and not you. Um, I pray that you help me to be clear and have clarity, um, to speak your word, to communicate truth from your word, that we might be blessed, that we might be edified, that we might be, by your spirit, illuminated, spurred on for good works, spurred on to love you more, grow more, live for you more and more. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. So the title of my sermon today from Nehemiah chapter 3 is, We Built This City. Inspired by the 80s classic track by the group Starship, um, maybe as I said the title, you know already the song I'm thinking about. If you if you're too young and you don't know the song I'm on about, The Diplomat's done a rap version of it in the early 2000s. <clears throat> you know the song, We built this city. We built this city on rock and roll. <laughs> now, I'm not suggesting that the Israelites were singing this when they built the city, that they were building the city on rock and roll. They were probably singing Psalm 118 whatever that shindig sounded like back then. Um, but I guess if we were to remix the song as Christians, we would be singing something like, We built this city, we built this city on Christ the rock. Now, stylistically, we probably wouldn't sing that because it's whack and cheesy. But theologically, I hope you're getting my point. You're getting what um meaning that we, the church, are building God's kingdom, and we're building it on a foundation, which is Christ. Nehemiah is building the kingdom of God, but he's building with the people of Israel the city walls in a physical sense. And us on the other side of redemptive history, um, we're no longer building a physical building or a physical city as such, as we are building a people um, which is on Christ, as it says in 1 Corinthians 3, that no one can lay a foundation other than that which has been laid, which is Christ Jesus. So we are building an invisible city with Christ as the cornerstone. So before I expand on that a bit more, I just want to explain some context, because I think this part of the Bible is not always so well known. Um, and not many people know it's important. So this part of the Bible, uh, Nehemiah and Ezra, which is kind of linked together as, as one book, this is like the last uh, history part or storytelling narrative of the Bible, which sets up the background scenes for the coming of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And so if I can start with say, King David, 1000 BC, 
King David is on the throne, and Israel is a unified nation. And then after David, he has a son called Solomon. And after Solomon, the nation of Israel splits into two kingdoms. You have the northern kingdom. The northern tribes have become a separate nation called Israel. And then the two southern tribes are a nation called Judea. And the southern tribes, Judea, have a particular loyalty to the Davidic monarchy, to the royalty of King David. And so in the north, what happens is, progressively, the children of Israel fall into idolatry and mayhem, and it just gets worse and worse. And eventually, they are overrun by the Assyrians and are led into captivity. And so that nation becomes no more and dispersed. And it doesn't take long for the southern tribe to go in the same direction. And they, the Assyrians, are overrun by the Babylonians. And then the Babylonians, they run in Judea and they absolutely decimate the place. And one of the tactics at that time when you would conquer your enemy is you'd go in and you would try to break up societal ties. They would try and break up societal ties. Things like a land and people and religion sort of were pieced together and they tied people together and kept people in a unity. And so the enemy would come in and seek to eradicate one of those societal ties so that the society would break down. And this is what happened. And so what the Babylonians did is they took the leaders out. They took the kings, they took the priests, they took the nobles, they took uh, the rich people and they led them off into captivity uh, where they would become slaves or dirt farmers and so on. Which then would leave the poor people behind and the tradesmen. And so because there was not enough leadership around, you couldn't make a counter-rebellion. You know, you've taken, you've broken this society up. And this is, this is God's people. This is a place where God's name rests, where the salvation's come in. And you can see that it has been destroyed in judgment. So then what happens is the Babylonians are taken over by the Persians. And the Persians, have, they have an emperor at the time called King Cyrus. And he reverses this policy. He reverses it. And he allows the people of God to go back to the promised land. And this happens in three waves. You have it first in the book of Ezra from Zerubbabel. Um, one group go back, start to rebuild. Then you get Ezra that goes back. And then we get to Nehemiah. Now, I give you this context because it's important to understand the vision that Nehemiah has for this building work. We are not to just think that Nehemiah's primary concern is just physical protection from the enemy solely, though that might be one of his goals. But solely that is not his main vision for why he wants to rebuild the city. His main vision of why he wants to rebuild the city lies in the promises of God. 
He knows the promise that God has made to Abraham, that through him shall the nations be blessed. In fact, Paul rightly interprets uh, the blessing through one descendant in the singular for us, that through Abraham, God is going to make a nation that is going to be a blessing. Nehemiah knows this. Nehemiah is thinking of the covenant that God had made with Moses where he gave the law and he gave the covenant and the law was, was given to God's people to get set, give them specific instructions for the temple and the priesthood and for how God's people were to worship him, how they were to atone for sins, how we were to live with one another under God's rule in God's uh, place with God's people. Thank you, brother. And so you've got to think, this, this had all gone. The temple had gone. You know, could, could you imagine a scenario where there was, we're all led in captivity and there's, there's no more church. There's no more f- functioning of the means of God's people now. And so this is the vision that Nehemiah has. He wants to repopulate this city. He wants the promises of, uh, he wants a people to live in the land under God's promises, um, living under God's authority, living under God's word, living amongst each other. And also, is the promise made to David that there would be a future king. This is yet to be fulfilled. So this is in the thinking of Nehemiah as he wants to rebuild this city. And this is the background to which we find that Jesus now walks into with this new city. And so with all that in mind, let me ask you this question. Does it bother you what the world thinks about Christianity right now? I mean, does it bother you that it seems like mainstream culture has largely considered Christianity to just be irrelevant uh, and primitive, something of the past, or actually, no, something that's, that's hindered us and enslaved us and has hindered us from human progression? Does, this, does it bother you? Um, you know, I, I'm a kind of guy that if I'm in the workplace or I'm out there, someone asks me a Christian, I like to say it with my chest. Like, yeah, I'm a Christian. And yet, there's a part of me at the back of my mind that feels that social pressure, that sort of feels a bit squirmish. Like, what do they perceive of this since we've had 2,000 years of this? When you have... Was it last week at the insurrection, a bunch of Trump supporters invading the capital city, and there's a guy who invokes Jesus' name and gets up and prays the white light and, and all this madness. Does that bother you? Does it bother you that we have enemies that, I mean, often the perception's not even an accurate one, right? But that just goes with the territory of misrepresentation, of hatred. You, we have enemies that, which you, what you hold dear, what you've experienced, the saving work of Jesus, the grace and love and restoration you've experienced. There are people that hate what you love out there. But 
I mean, maybe so what? I mean, maybe this is my Western kind of thinking. Um, I always found it quite weird when people said, this used to be a Christian country, to which I'm like, well, yeah. Definitely people went church more, and definitely we could say so. But it kind of gives you this false impression that things were so great back then, as if there were some terrible things back then. People were still sinners. And so God's people have been misrepresented from the beginning. The early church um, had this, right? But maybe more closer to home, does it bother you about the state of the church right now? About whether the church looks weak or looks in a position of vulnerability? Um, Leaders are either going through burnout or, or worse, we hear every other month, a leader that's caught in immorality and we're just like, not this again. Some leaders just compromising the faith. And you're just looking around at the church and you're just seeing broken walls. You're seeing brokenness. You're seeing, you, you're worried. You're thinking, will the church still exist in five years from now, in 10 years from now, in 20 years from now, does this concern you? Does it bother you? Does it, does it motivate you and think, where is the pure movement of God? Where are the people who want to be on this, living for Jesus, glorifying him, whatever the cost? Maybe you're motivated this way. Or maybe even more closer to home than that. Maybe you're looking at your own life. And if I was to describe it like a city, you'd just be like, the gates are broken. The windows are smashed. My, my, I'm broken into. My life is broken. I can't even, I am concerned about all them things. But I can't do anything about it because you're so discouraged you feel you're looking at your own life and the brokenness and you're feeling like what's the solution what can what can I do and so whether you're motivated or discouraged I've got good news for you that God is a master rebuilder God is a master restorer and God wants to restore his people and build his people. And so we want to look at our text this morning, see this mass building project work, and see what applications can we pull out so that we are building one another up. Ever since the fall in the Garden of Eden, God has been building his kingdom. He's been building a people for himself. And he has sent his son, who atoned for our sins, who rose again and defeated death. And so now in him we are joined together, building a new humanity with Christ as the head. When we look at this text, it's quite remarkable we see what God's people have achieved. And we must remember that these were a backslidden people. These were a people coming back to the Lord. It wasn't that they were so amazing or gifted or have it together. God is always the hero. God always gets the glory. So let me read our text this morning. 
I'll be reading the whole chapter of Nehemiah 3. Forgive me if I butcher some of the pronunciations. Nehemiah 3. Then Eliashib the high priest rose up and his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zachor, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hassaniah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And next to them, Miramoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakas, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshezabel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Bena, repaired. And next to them, the Tequites repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve their lord. Joada, the son of Pesiah, and Meshulam, the son of Besodiah, repaired the gate of Yeshena. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them repaired Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Moronithite, the men of Gibeon and of Mishpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uzil, the son of Hehiah, goldsmiths repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephiah, the son of Ur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Judea, the son of Harumath, repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashabaniah, repaired. Melchizedek, the son of Harim, and Hashub, the son of Pahath Moab, repaired another section and the tower of the ovens. Next to them, Shalom, the son of Helohesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. Hanun, the son of Zenoah, sorry, Hanun, the inhabitants of Zenoah, repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it, set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and they repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the Dungate. Malchijah, the son of Rehab, ruler of the district of Beth-Hakarim, repaired the Dungate. They repaired it, set its bolts, set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And Shalom, the son of Kohosa, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Selah, of the king's garden, as far as the stairs go down from the city of David. And after him, Nehemiah, the son of Hasbuk, ruler of half the district of Bezor, repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool and as far as the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites repaired, Rehem, the son of Bani, next to him, Hashabiah, ruler of half the district of Keliah, repaired for his district. After him, their brothers repaired. Bavai, the son of Henadad, ruler of half the district of Keliah. Next to him, Ezer, the son of Yeshua, ruler of Mishpah, repaired another section opposite the ascent to the armory at the buttress. 
After him, Barak, the son of Zabai, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Mirimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakos, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. After him, the priests, the men of the surrounding area, repaired. After them, Benjamin and Hashab repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Mehaziah, son of Hananiah, repaired beside his own house. After him, Benui, the son of Hinadad, repaired another section from the house of Hazariah to the buttress and to the corner. Pilau, the son of Uzai, repaired opposite the buttress and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king at the court of the guard. After him, Pediah, the son of Perosh. The temple servants living at Ophel repaired to a point opposite the water gate on the east and the projecting tower. After him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests repaired, each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Imar, repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shekinah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shilamiah, and Hanan, the sixth son of Zaleph, repaired another section. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, repaired opposite his chamber. After him, Melchijah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants opposite the muster gate and to the upper chamber of the corner. And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. <laughs> Round of applause, yeah? <laughs> you know, it's funny, I heard um, someone was preaching on this, and he got to verse 6 and just said, yeah, now you just get a bunch of list of names, and just kept it moving. <laughs> Made me feel better about myself. But, you see, after reading a long list like that, you're probably thinking it's not exactly an easy passage to preach on. We got a list here of names of builders, some 40 sections, rebuilding around the walls of the city of Jerusalem, which probably, it starts from the northeast side of Jerusalem at the Sheep Gate, and then the list goes anti-clockwise, all the way back round until we get to the Sheep Gate again. And rather than tediously walking through verse by verse and observing topography and geography, um, we want to take a step back from the plethora of detail and reflect on the great achievement this building work was. I mean, they built this city. When you consider the opposition they had around them, we saw that at the last half of chapter 2, Sabalat, and you'll see it in chapter 4 also, they have surrounding opposition and considering the lack of resources, they were, able, they were able to build this wall in 52 days. And it goes to show that when God's people come together and have a common vision, a common purpose, what God can achieve through us when we work together. 
And so my, my sermon outline, I've got three main headings. My first one is rebuilding is a community project. My second one is the work of rebuilding needs leaders and co-builders. And my third point in conclusion will be rebuilding together for the future city. So looking at our first point, rebuilding is a community project. I mean, when you look at this passage, you've got 40 sections that are working simultaneously. And so there's a repeated phrase from verse 1 to 15, which says, and next to them, and next to them, next to them, next to them. And then from verse 16 to 32, there's a bit of a style change, and it says, after him, after him, after him. And so you get this notion of them working side by side, locked arms, all together, working. And you see, this is a picture of God's people. This is a picture that Paul, in 1 Corinthians 12, teases out for us when he calls us the body of Christ, that though the body is one, there are many members. And so if you remember, some of you might remember, I actually preached on that text in August, and the title was called Unity in Diversity, explaining the truth that we as a body, as a church, are one unit, and we're all joined together, and yet within this unity, there's diversity. Um, When you look at this list, there are people from all different ages, different professions, um, different sexes, and they've all come together um, to work on this. So really, in the, in the, in the Christian life, there shouldn't be a lone ranger mentality. There's no such thing, really, I know the cliche sounds nice, that me and my personal relationship with Jesus. I remember when someone first preached the gospel, he said Christianity is about having a personal relationship with Jesus. And I don't want to double down and rebuke it too much. I get the sentiment. But in one sense, it's not personal in the sense that it's shared with other people. And if it isn't shared with other people, I would doubt that you even have it personal. How can you, you know, John teases us out and says, how can you say you love God who you don't see but then don't love your brother who you do see. You know, so the way we see this love and this union with God is teased out in the body of Christ, in the church, in the people of God. Could you imagine these builders coming together and one of them was like, I'm just going to build my own wall regardless of everyone else. No matter how good and skilled that person was, at building that wall, if that wall doesn't interlock with the other walls, it's going to fall down. And likewise, if we are not joined in with God's people, we will fall down. And so you see that we need a common vision, a common purpose to come together. And I'm sure at this church, you've all seen the slogan, right? Ecclesia, God's people, for God's glory. That's our vision. It's a broad one, but who, as a Christian, could disagree with that one? Um, we're all working under this umbrella. And really what we see is that everyone is needed. Everyone is needed. 
When Paul teases out that body metaphor, he explains about the body, how the hand can't say to the feet and the head can't say, I can't remember the arrangement now. But you get the point is that the whole body needs one another. There's this interdependency of the body to come together, to work together for a common cause, which ultimately is the glorification or, let me say, not the glorification, it is displaying God's glory. I sometimes think it, it's amazing that God's designed it this way. Because then it's so evident that when we see a build like this, this isn't primarily even about Nehemiah, primarily, or, or the people, but as it is God working through these people. And God is, God is the one in our church who is joining everyone together. And so it's God who gets the maximum amount, the, the, the total glory. And so you see examples of this build work throughout this text. You see Salem in verse 16. You know, he's even got his daughters involved. You know? <laughs> you got this idea that everyone's just mucking in. Like he's got his family, they're building this wall. You know? So you might feel like, I'm not even particularly gifted. Or what can I do? What's my role? It's interesting to note from this passage that out of all the professions, none of them are professional builders. None of them are. And yet, they're all stuck in together. And so, there's a role for everyone. There's a, there's a gift that God wants to use. And if you dig deep enough, I'm sure that you will see passions and desires in you that God wants to use for him. You might look at the church and you see an area of need and it burdens you and concerns you. And so you take it to the Lord in prayer. And often what's going to happen is you're the means by which God wants to use. Otherwise, why would you be concerned about it? There are other areas in the church sometimes and you're not concerned about those areas you know, and, it, and it's that we're all different. We're not all the same. That happens continually. So we see that rebuilding is a community project and all is needed for the building of God's city, of God's kingdom. And it's important to note that this unity that we should share in and lock, it's not a uniformity. It's not that we all become the same. And it's not even that we always agree all the time. Even in our passage, Eliashib, one of his family members, I believe it's in chapter 13, if I'm not mistaken, Nehemiah has a run-ins with him. So not everyone was on board with Nehemiah. Not everyone, not everyone see, saw eye to eye all the time. But they still came together for the greater purpose of unity, and I think this is a, it's so important. You know, Paul stresses this in the New Testament, doesn't he? He even names individuals, urging them to agree on the Lord, to be united, to be unified. We got enemies out there. We don't need them in here. And it's a shame, you know, you see the Tikoites, their nobles in verse 5. It, it doesn't really say why. It says they wouldn't stoop to serve their Lord. And the Lord here is, I believe in the Hebrew, it's a plural. So 
it, it probably means that by, by them not serving Nehemiah, they weren't serving the Lord. You know? I mean, I don't want something written like that about me. <laughs> you know? Could you imagine? Um, <laughs> we see there are some jobs as well, like verse 14, Melchijah. Here's a man repairing the dungate, you know. Talk about taking one for the team. Now, I'm not saying that the gate itself was a system, a toilet system, but that's where the flow of, you get the point, and down to the rubbish tip. So I can't imagine it probably weren't smelling too fresh. Do you know what I'm saying? But for the sake of the kingdom of God and the vulnerability that's down there, they need to rebuild this gate. And so man's doing this work. And we know that sometimes in church, there are jobs like this that are just, we think, oh, you know, tabernacle team know this well. <laughs> Hot, sweaty day, summer, man's got to change the nappy bin. You know what I'm saying? It's, and you're just like, in your heart, oh, do you know what I mean? But it's like, someone's got to do it. Do you know what I'm saying? You know, these are just tedious examples, but you get my point, that we muck in. You know, it isn't just that, well, this is only my gift, and I'm only doing this one. You know, there are brothers in this list that they're doing more than one. They're zealous. They're doing more than one. Some are only doing one section. Others are doing other sections. And you see that in the church. You get other people with, like, multiple hats on, just doing different roles, even roles that, that ain't me. Man's just going to throw me in the children's ministry, and I'm going to stand in front of these kids, like, singing on his guitar and... Looking like an, do you know what I mean? But, you know, it's, it's, it's all for a cause, a unified cause. Um, so let me tease out some other applications from my second point. So the work of rebuilding, it needs leaders and it needs co-builders. And so whilst I think this passage isn't primarily about Nehemiah and what a great leader he is, um, nevertheless, we can tease out some applications for us coming together as a church and as kingdom builders. And I think that one of the things we want to highlight is that, um, and, and these apply both ways, leaders or co-builders, because, and when I say leaders, I'm not just talking about like pastors or elders, um, there are leaders in all kinds of sense. There are people that lead in barley loads. There are people that lead prayer meetings. There are people that, that lead in all different ways. And God will raise up people. We need more people to take responsibility, to take leadership. So I'm not saying this just for pastors, although I would, of course, it includes them. But it includes all of us. So one of these things we want to point out is I think that uh, leaders and co-builders, we mustn't want the limelight. You know, it's interesting to note that in this chapter, like Nehemiah isn't even mentioned. There is another Nehemiah mentioned in there, but it's not the same guy. So Nehemiah is quite happy to let the credit go to others. You know, he doesn't even build a wall after himself. You know, when you get them football stadium builds and it's like, this is the Matthew Hardy stand. You know what I mean? And man's got a statue of himself, like, so that you can remember him for generations. But Nehemiah's 
He's, he's not on that. He's not on self. It's not about him. It's about the purposes of God. You know, and this is any work we do is for the Lord. It's not for ourselves. Nehemiah just wants God's people to not be a reproach and wants them to be a blessing. Another thing I want to tease out is leaders and co-builders need to be able to motivate people. You know, they built the wall in 52 days and there were people already there before Nehemiah rocked up. So it's not till Nehemiah got commission from the king and come and started to make moves and, and, and actually motivate people. I mean, he couldn't get the noble Chicoats involved, but he got people involved. And, you know, motivating people is tricky because what motivates some people turns other people off. And so what we see here is what Nehemiah does is he gets people working on their particular interests. You notice the priests are at the sheep gate. So this is where the sacrifices come in. And he's got people repairing their own homes. So there's, there's a personal incentive for them to do a good job. And so we want to look out at our congregation and, 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 and see what our people where are their gifts? What are they interested in? Another thing we can observe from this is that leaders must delegate. They must delegate. There's no way that Nehemiah could have done this building work by himself. This is why the church needs co-builders. We need workers. Leaders need to be able to entrust work to other people hand over authority to them. And the thing is, right, it's like, I'm pretty sure that Pastor E could preach this text better than me. I'm pretty sure that he might be able to do the sound better than everyone else and set up for church, lead barley loaves, run discipleship groups, and the list just goes on and on. And what, what you see is eventually, you can't do it all. You can't. And so it's like, we see if, if, if there's no delegation, two things can result from that. One, one is burnout, and the other one is accusations of heavy shepherding. We see that in churches where you have pastors that just have their hand in absolutely everything. And it's not healthy. It's not healthy for them. It's not healthy for the congregation. As the jobs get bigger and bigger... We need delegation. We need willing workers that will relieve the burden from other workers so that we're all joined together. It's not the same people just doing the same things. We need everyone just mucking in and getting involved in any way they can. And this delegation, it isn't just to dump responsibility. It isn't like just dumping things on people and then not overseeing. I mean, Nehemiah reports that there were guys doing more than one gate. You know, he reports the list. So he knew, he oversaw the work. He knew what was happening. The other thing is he gave proper recognition. You know, he lists the people and their names in this section. 
It's more important that it was God who recognized them. This is God's word. And these names are in the Bible for every generation. Do you know what I mean? And lastly, I think, leaders and co-builders, we ought not to get distracted by those who don't cooperate. You know, like the, the Tikuites who didn't want to get involved. Um, we want to press on with the building work. Um, So let me come to my last point and conclude with this point. Now, what are we building for exactly? Um, my last point is that we're building together for a future city. Let me read Revelation from Revelation 21, verse 9. Then came out of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal, it had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And on the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And going down to verse 22, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty, the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it its light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And this is ultimately what we're building for, what we're building towards, that great day when Jesus returns and consummates his kingdom. You know, wouldn't it be great, I mean, I'm imagining, but wouldn't it be great if in the Lamb's Book of Life, I don't know, there's a chapter on history and there's a chapter on this church, Ecclesia, and it, and it and it's quotes off the names, you know, and next to him, pastor, da-da-da, and next to him, deacon so-and-so, and next to him, and you just got this list of names of this work that has been accomplished for God's purposes. And wouldn't it be a shame if in that list it says, and Paul Daper wouldn't get involved in the ministry of the law because yada, yada, yada. 
you know. Um, you know, God has built us a city, and that city is coming. And we are in the kingdom of God now, this kingdom which to the eye seems invisible or is invisible. We're not building a physical place or trying to take over nations and get power, you know, like kings. Um, we just want to humbly submit to the one true king who is the king of all the cosmos. And so I just want to end there and say, will we build together? Will we catch the vision of what God's doing in this church? You know, will we bond and unify, come together in the gospel of our Lord, using our talents, using our gifts? Let me end with this verse, 1 Peter 4, verse 10 to 11. As each one of us has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to who belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So, what is your gift? What is your contribution? You know, this isn't me preaching a workspace gospel um, in the sense that we are earning God's forgiveness. We are a saved people, saved by grace, um, saved for good works, saved for kingdom building, saved to be sons of the kingdom. We're to be salt and light on the earth. Let us unify. Let us join together. Let us build. Let us look around and see where are the blind spots, where are the walls that are broken. And let's rebuild together as God is rebuilding our lives all together in one for the ultimate day. This has been going on from the beginning. After Revelation 21, it's the restoration of Eden. You know, take that image away just from city and temple, but God is restoring the world. God is rebuilding the whole cosmos. And you are invited to join in on this project, this grand project. And it is by faith, it's by faith and repentance that we enter in. And it is by God's love and grace that we persevere through and contribute into being what he wants us to be, image bearers of God, true humans. Amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.